This is part one of Art and Anatomy after the introduction. It's entitled Opening Bodies, a brief history of the craft of dissection. I start with a quote as per normal from Javier Bichat, born in 1771, died very early in 1802, from his 1801 Anatomie Générale Appliquée et la Physiologie et la Médecin. Open up a few corpses, you will dissipate at once the darkness that observation alone could not dissipate. Several autopsies will give you more light than 20 years of observation of symptoms." Unquote. The study of anatomy through the dissection of human bodies has many possible beginnings, perhaps first with Herophilus of Chalcedon or Erasistratus of Chios, and perhaps most famously with Hippocrates of Cos. Herophilus is considered actually the father of anatomy, but like his counterpart Erasistratus a generation on, nothing is left of their writings. <coughs> all of which were destroyed in a fire in 48 BC in the Great Library of Alexandria. Both men were reputed to have permission by the pharaoh to vivisect restrained criminals. But anatomy's greatest ancient champion was Galen of Pergamon, who lived from around about 129 to 210 AD and whose writings make up about 10% of ancient Greek documents now available, nearly half of all the medical documents from this era in current possession. The known Galenic works probably only represent about a third of his complete writings, as much was also lost in a fire in the Temple of Peace in AD 192. They were collated by some 20 scribes and totaled over about three million words in more than a hundred treatises on all subjects, ranging from bodily function to hygiene, semiotics, bloodletting, which he introduced to Romans as a treatment, and logic. After Galen and with the fall of Rome, for more than a millennium the practice of anatomy and dissection was abandoned, it was, however, actively studied in the Arab world, particularly during its golden age between the 8th and the 13th centuries, even though these great Arabic texts were not available to Europeans until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Actually, when Constantinople and Cordoba were sacked by the Christian forces, the great libraries of the Caliphate were demolished. The Arab world up until this time stretched from the Iberian Peninsula, northern Africa and southern Arabia, out to the Caspian Sea and the Indus Valley, and many medical and anatomical advances were made by their physicians often long before traditional Western medicine. The Quran neither endorses nor sanctions human dissection. The principal Arab anatomists included Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi, who was known as Razus, 
854 to 925. Ibn Abbas, Ibn al-Haytam, or al-Hazan as he became known, Abu Alisinna, who was known as Avicenna, Abu al-Qasim al-Zahrawi, who was known as al-Bukasis, Ibn Rushd, who was known as Avaroas, 1126 to 1198, Abdul al-Latif al-Baghdadi, and Ibn al-Nafis. And these physicians produced the great compendia of medicine, such as the Kitab al-Mansuri, the books of optics and the pharmacopoeias that were handed down from the holy book and the life of the prophet. When we come back to Claudius Galen, the man, we know very little about him. He was a Greek who was the personal physician to the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who was the founder of the branch of philosophy, Stoicism. After the death of Marcus Aurelius, Galen continued on as physician to the new emperor Commodus, both men witnessing the ravages of the Antonine Plague, which was killing around 2,000 people in Rome every day. Galen would have had ample opportunity to inspect the bodies of the dead and dying, even though the internal examination of human corpses was forbidden at that time under Roman law. Instead, Galen acquired his vast anatomical knowledge from intensive dissections and vivisections of animals, only assuming parallels and homology between animal and human anatomy. Despite this, many of Galen's tenets, which were inaccurate, found their way into the canonical anatomy texts and were reinforced over centuries by teachers whose tradition was to teach anatomy by the book rather than at the slab. There are particular examples quoted of this disparity between Galenic teachings and the observable findings on the dissection of human corpses. Examples of Galenic teachings which were false, but which appeared in most textbooks, included the division of the interior of the uterus, for example, into seven separate compartments, as found in cows but not in humans the presence of a network of blood vessels, which was called the reti mirabilis at the base of the brain, and microscopic pores, importantly, in the ventricular muscle of the heart, which in the absence of a theory of circulation of the blood, could allow a connection between the right and left sides of the heart. And indeed, Galen's inability to determine that there was a circulation was really the separation between this kind of ancient Roman or Greco-Roman view of anatomy and the ultimate modern anatomy that came about through William Harvey in the 17th century. Moreover, the idea that human sickness was the effect of specific causes was alien to ancient physicians who regarded illness as supernatural in origin and the province of the will of the gods. Human disease was considered the result of the imbalance of humours, the blood, the phlegm, the black and the yellow bile. Without a knowledge of anatomy uh, necessary, it would be viewed by many physicians as essentially uh, irrelevant. The Galenic scheme, of course, of bodily humours has carried over into the description of personalities, therefore, as sanguine or as 
bilious or as phlegmatic. But despite this restricted view, Galen separated the known anatomy into its requisite parts of the body um, with extensive anatomical works, including his De Usupartium, his De Venarum et Arteriorumque on the veins and arteries, his De Nervorum, his De Motum Musculorum, and his De Anatomicis Administrationibus, the anatomical procedures. And these hallowed texts held sway as the basis of all anatomical teaching until Vesalius. However, between Roman times and the Middle Ages, it would be both inaccurate, I think, and insufficient to suggest an entirely blank intellectual canvas. This period was dominated not by any great understanding of the physical world, but rather by a pervasive ascetic philosophy articulated by a few influential religious scholars who were enunciating the doctrines of fledgling Christian thought. Christian scholastics saw their role as one of creating the tenets and limits of the new faith, and for that purpose they co-opted those parts of pagan traditions that could prove useful in description of the known structure of the universe in order to establish a kind of theological approach that explained observable physical phenomena, such as the trajectory of comets or the repeated appearance of eclipses. The incorporation of Galenic anatomy into theological debates was just one further example of this process of theoretical and practical accommodation. However, it left little flexibility when new discoveries were made. The presence of any new findings, either in the cosmos or through human dissection, would naturally result in conflict with the recently accepted theological dogma. That process would suggest why Galen's perspective on anatomy became so entrenched by the church and why when Vesalius ultimately challenged the Galenic position there was so much vociferous opposition. After Galen, the section of the human body lapsed for over a thousand years until a Bolognese anatomist, Mondino de Liuzzi, born in 1270 and died in 1326, emerged to resurrect the dissection of corpses for anatomical teaching. Now, although there were several well-known medieval surgeons who were active in human dissection and who were even producing textbooks on this subject, only Mondino, or Mondinus as he preferred, published a definitive curriculum of body dissection at this time. The central influence of Mondino on the conduct of medieval anatomy through his dissection method subordinates many other less spectacular figures who were often named for their town of origin and who were dissecting cadavers between 1300 and 1500. I can't give you really an exhaustive list, but they include Bruno de Longobucco, Pietro de Banu, who was a personal friend of Marco Polo, Henri de Montville, Guy de Choliac, who was a student of Mondino, Theodoric Borgognoni, Guglielmo de Salicetto, Ugo Borgognoni di Luca, Lanfranchi of Milan, Theodoric of Celia, Niccolò de Montselicen, Leonardo Buffi de Bertipaglia. Mandinus also had to contend with the influence of Pope Boniface VIII, 
who released a papal bull in 1299, the Dita Feritatis, which expressly forbade the dismembering of bodies after death. Boniface was particularly appalled at the practice, which was established early during the Crusades, of boiling bodies down so that the bones of fallen warriors could be transported or bartered as holy relics. With the Boniface bull, Mundinus was in theory restricted from dissecting and teaching students but he still continued the examination of corpses, risking excommunication. His contemporary rivals, Nicholas and Richard of Salerno, however, took the words of a belligerent pope to heart, believing that body separation and its examination were, quote, inhumanum et maxima apud catholicus, unquote, inhuman, especially to Catholics. Spreading the word, there were some anatomists who were convinced that human dissection should be prohibited throughout Europe. And despite these theological conflicts at some personal risk, by 1316 Mundinus was able to produce his Manual of Anatomy, the Anatomia, which became a seminal work. I should point out that separation of the body for burial in different parts of the world created sort of defined places for pilgrimage, uh, when somebody either wholly or important died, and it was at the time frequently used by royalty. Body separation was the express wish, for example, of England's kings, Henry I, King John, Henry III, and even Richard the Lionheart. After Edward I died in 1307, it was proposed that his heart should be carried at the head of every English army until their mortal enemy Scotland was vanquished, and that after victory, 140 knights should then bear it for burial to the Holy Land. Of course, this never happened. Boniface, of course, reissued the bull with the threat of excommunication in 1300, and again in 1303, but it was cancelled in 1304 by Pope Benedict XI, with exemptions provided by successive popes Clement V, in 1306, and John the 23rd in 1316. Although the book by Mundinus Anatomia was published without illustrations, the beauty of this book was in its explicit instructions from the master Mundinus himself on precisely how to split up a cadaver. The Mundinus method became the blueprint for human dissection, and was effectively the most important guide on anatomy for the next 200 years. And in it, Mundinus laid out the details for the best method of preparing a human skull, precisely how to decapitate it from the rest of the body and instructions on how to boil off the flesh. Writing in Latin and also in Arabic, he planned a dissection schedule that followed the natural sequence of decomposition of the body parts after death. Without any formal uh, mechanism of tissue preservation, dissections were ephemeral events, and they were always a race against time. First in dissection were what he referred to as the inferior ventricles, consisting of the abdomen <coughs> and the intestines. And these tissues he considered the least noble and the most confused. Next to be dissected was the thorax, with the heart and lungs and its vital spirit, the pneuma. After that, the brain, which was, according to Aristotle, 
the origin of the animal spirit and where the philosophers believed was the site of the integrating centre of all the senses, the sensa comune, which many thought to be the seat of the soul. In that regard, this was the area later identified by Leonardo da Vinci near the third ventricle of the brain. And if the brain was left unexamined for more than a few days, its substance soon liquefied and it rapidly became impossible to dissect and absolutely rancid. On this matter, the philosopher René Descartes, who supported his philosophical contentions with personal dissections of the brain, lamented the damage of the brain in his 1649 Passion de l'âme. And in it, he regretfully wrote that by the time he'd been given a brain to dissect by the anatomists, that the soul, which he believed existed in the canarium, the pineal gland, had always deteriorated so badly that he couldn't make any useful examinations of it. Well, after examination of the brain, the muscles of the limbs and the genitalia awaited. And both of those, if left for any length of time, took on the consistency of old leather, even though they maintained their integrity and shape. The muscles dried out like strips of string, but they could be easily peeled off the bones, which when cleaned of their attachments were available for individual study. The bones indeed were the only part of the body to maintain their integrity, and collecting them became the abiding passion of many anatomists. For some, it transformed into their prime obsession. Another important contribution made by Mundinus was his impact on the manner in which anatomy itself was taught. His method was particularly rigid in its application, preventing any deviation that might have discovered individual anatomic variations. The technique centred around the professor who would sit in a pulpit reading aloud the anatomy of the body from one of the canonical Galenic texts, the term ex cathedra means from the chair is often appropriated to describe the, profess, uh, the professor in his position. The term was used by the Catholic Church to describe the pronouncements made by the Pope at a time when he was considered infallible. Below was a dissector, usually a surgeon who might also be called a demonstrator these days, whose task it was to actually cut open the corpse. And alongside was an ostensor, the equivalent really of a mortuary attendant today, who was charged with a pointer 
to show all of the findings that directly correlated with the professorial word. And with this method, dissection was an entirely passive event with the expectation that the visible and the written word would exactly match. It wasn't until 200 years later when Vesalius, in examining the body for himself, found over 200 discrepancies between his dissection findings and the written works of Galen. Vesalius, who came from a medical dynasty, was a young Belgian anatomy student who'd entered the school in Paris in order to complete his medical training after beginning his studies at the University of Leuven. With little to do, he was charged by his mentor, Gunther of Andernach, to dissect the body since the university had just acquired the complete works of Galen. The project seemed at best rather pedestrian, with Gunther intending the exercise as a mere confirmation of the known Galenic findings. The works of Galen had been purchased by the university in 1526, and they were published by Aldine Press in Venice, a publishing house that was started in 1494 by Aldus Minucius. The Aldine Press was renowned for publishing restored Greek literature, including the works of Aristotle, Herodotus, Virgil, Sophocles and Homer, all in Latin, and the contemporary writers Petrarch, Dante and Castiglione in the vernacular Italian. But after this little engagement by Gunther van Dernach, several things became quickly apparent to Vesalius. Firstly, Vesalius soon discovered with some shock that Galen had never dissected a single human being. Only one other member of the academic faculty in Paris at the time, Jacques Dubois, who preferred the Latin cognomen Silvius, appeared to have previously dissected a corpse. The remainder, including Gunther, had learnt all their anatomy by this Mundinus method. And um, in this environment, Vesalius soon became a particularly skilful dissector, attracting large audiences with this new method, which effectively combined the roles of professor, dissector and ostensor into one. Inviting his students to roll up their sleeves and to actively dissect the body for themselves, Vesalius encouraged a novel approach which garnered immediate and immense popularity. Reinforcing the visual nature of anatomical study, it was the first time that the subject had been taught with the intent of using empirical observation in an effort to advance knowledge. Vesalius became an instant success and he was invited to perform public dissections across Italy. His reputation was furthered by reports of his calm manner, his delicate approach when those around him were pretty undisciplined and comparatively chaotic, and he had a particularly charismatic personality. Now, this was a time when Vasco da Gama had just reached India. Columbus had discovered the Americas, and Leonardo, Michelangelo, Botticelli, Raphael, Giorgione, they were all active. The printing press had resulted in an explosion of independent presses expanding the total number of books kept in libraries across Europe from around about 30,000 or so recorded in 1450 to about 8 million by 1500. Despite this, the art of anatomy lagged behind the high art emerging 
from the same neighbourhood and that was flourishing under the patronage of the popes Alexander VI, Julius II, Leo X and Clement VII. In 1540, at a church in Bologna, one German student, Baldassar Hessler, who'd studied with Martin Luther, witnessed Vesalius dissecting a hanged criminal and vivisecting live dogs, and he wrote how elegantly the master worked, even rhapsodising on the sober professionalism of, of the dissector. And one can find this in Baldassar Hessler's book, Andreas Vesalius, First Public Anatomy at Bologna, in 1540, an eyewitness report, together with his notes on Matthias Curtius, who was a physician, lectures on Anatomia Mundini. This was all found and translated into English by Reuben Erickson, who was a librarian. The discovery uh, was made and published uh, by this librarian at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. Hessler himself was born in Lignitz in Silesia, now Lignitz in Poland, and he studied medicine under Valentin Friedland Trotzendorf, and he then switched to theology, studying directly under Martin Luther at the University of Wittenberg. Hessler witnessed some 26 lectures and demonstrations uh, performed by Vesalius. Now, more than a mere anatomy text, Vesalius's Fabrica, the product of dissecting labours, was a declaration, really, of principles. And even in parts, it could be considered a vibrant autobiography that chronicled the life of a jobbing anatomist. The chaotic scene depicted on its title page is enough to sense the pandemonium of a boisterous crowd at a public renaissance anatomization. Uh, if one looks at that central figure, there's Vesalius commanding attention amid this bedlam, captivating the throngs of onlookers as he opens the abdomen of a woman and he peels back her skin and abdominal wall like the pages of a book. His other hand is raised. He raises a finger heavenwards to suggest a noble and even divine connection. The room is symbolic, the powerful columns graced by the memento mori of a skeleton and with representatives of past vivisections in the form of a monkey and a dog. The decision by Vesalius to depict the dissection of a woman is actually deliberate in his frontispiece. These events were rare and mysterious. As an example of the relative rarity of a public dissection of a woman in Florence between the years 1420 and 1469, of the 331 people who were executed, only 10 were women. In England, to avoid the indignity of anatomization of a woman, female criminals convicted of treason or mariticide, heresy or counterfeiting, were executed by being burnt at the stake, a sentence that was finally abolished by the Treason Act of 1790. In fact, it was thought so barbaric that uh, women who were committed to be burnt at the stake were usually strangled beforehand or poisoned. The frontispiece of Vesalius's Fabrica reflects his power as an anatomist and included on his work table if you look at the image of the accoutrements of his trade. In another image he displays not only these complex instruments of his anatomies 
but also those he had read about from India and Mesopotamia. But in the title page, close by to the opened woman, he leaves only the scalpel and a pen, reminding his audience that just as he has acquired the knowledge of a woman's innermost anatomy, her secretus mulieribus, one might say, that it's also his intention to openly write on the matter. But for his efforts, and in part because of the rise of his star, Vesalius, however, suffered the opprobrium of his mentors and sparked a debate between the Galenists and the modernists over how the body should be dissected and what were the true findings of those examinations. His most vociferous critic, Silvius, firmly believed in the infallibility of Galen, declaring that if there was a discrepancy between the cadaver and Galen, then Galen should be believed over the senses. In his Ordo et Ratio Ordinus Legendus Hippocrates et Galenae Libris, Silvius even went on so far as to suggest that Galen was divine and that if the findings at dissection differed from Galen, then, quote-unquote, the body was wrong. Now, this argument would run um, between the disciples of both groups, the Galenists and those following Vesalius, the modernists, for the next 200 years. But Silvius's arguments created a serious rift in the theological perception of anatomy. In the immediate aftermath of their confrontation, Vesalius took it upon himself to answer his critics after the publication of the fabric of the formal riposte, which was called the Epistle on the China Route. Uh, Silvius waited eight years, actually, to publish his own account, a refutation of the slanders of a madman against the anatomy of Hippocrates and Galen, in which he declared that the opponents of Galen were, quote-unquote, deranged. In a play on words, Silvius referred to Vesalius as a Vyasami, a madman, and he was so incensed with the philosophy and prominence of Vesalius that he implored the Emperor Charles V to, quote, punish severely as he deserves this monster born and reared in his own home, this most pernicious exemplar of ignorance, ingratitude, arrogance and impiety who with his deadly spume has already infected certain Frenchmen, Germans and Italians, and that the emperor should suppress him so that he may not poison the rest of Europe with his pestilential breath. There was a lot of animosity towards Vesalius because of his findings, which were anti-Galenic. But as I've said, Silvius's arguments created a significant theological problem with anatomy. His suggestion that Renaissance man had somehow degenerated since the reports of ancient times by Galen into something more brutish as a means to explain all the findings made at dissection by Vesalius that differed with Galen was irreconcilable with the biblical story of creation. If the dissection of the Renaissance body was different from the Galenic body because the anatomy had somehow deteriorated, there couldn't be an explanation for why God would have created such a perfect creature, only to let it become so debased. With his hands-on approach, 
Vesalius further alienated his teachers and their acolytes, even going so far as to accuse his professors of squawking like jackdaws aloft in their high chair with egregious arrogance, croaking things that they'd never investigated, but merely committed to memory from the books of others, unquote. It would appear also that his skill was matched by a particular arrogance with his claims to be the finest dissector in the world and to, quote, have done as much for medicine as Trajan did for the Roman Empire, unquote. Indeed, according to the medical historian Roy Porter, Vesalius also told his students that, quote, Hippocrates has already staked out this path, but I have made it passable. What an arrogance. In one extraordinary image from the Fabrica, Vesalius has his, one of his skeletons intently examining the skull of another, leaving the contemplative words for his audience, Vivitur ingenio catera mortus errant, genius lives on, all the rest will perish. It was perhaps the most thinly veiled self-reference by a man who at the time, with some justification, regarded himself as simply the greatest anatomist on earth. When Vesalius made dissection a free-for-all as an independent discipline, it became democratised. But his lasting legacy was in asking Van Kalka to sequentially illustrate those dissections. Now, this idea was also, however, in the mind of one of his rivals, Charles Estienne, born in 1504, died in 1564, who had begun the first volume of his own De Dissectione Partium Corporis Humani in three volumes back in 1539, but who'd endured so many quarrels with his publisher and with his working anatomist, Etienne de la Riviere, that publication was held up for about six years. Estienne was a staunch supporter, actually, of Vesalius, despite the fact that the Fabrica beat him to publication. And even though Estienne's book rather innovatively included complex maps of the arterial system of the body, along with cross-sectional anatomy, he didn't fare very well with publication, and he died in a debtor's prison.
out of deference to Vesalius and finding out in 1541 about the superiority of Van Kalka's images, Ferrara's professor of anatomy, Gian Battista Canano, shelved his own idea of embellishing a work he'd been preparing on the human musculature, the Musculorum Humani Corporis Picturata Dissectio. The pictures for this rather unique book had already been drawn by his friend, the artist Girolamo da Carpi, but Canano obligingly held off on production until after the Fabrica had been published. It was a remarkably magnanimous gesture that changed the course of Canano's life, who wrote later without regret of his decision, and who only ever published the first part of this illustrated work in 1545 that dealt with the anatomy of the muscles of the arm. Some of, some of Canano's illustrations can be dated as far back as 1530 to 1532. A facsimile edition was annotated in Florence in 1925 by the neurosurgeon Professor Harvey Cushing and the medical historian Dr Edward C. Streeter. But it's interesting to think about how history would have changed if Vesalius had been beaten either by STM or by Canano. The period just prior to the 15th century had not really been rich in anatomical discovery, but with the advent of the printing press, Vesalius took full advantage of the explosion of independent presses. The innovative images of Vesalius's great book were rapidly disseminated, but they were soon also brazenly copied. Vesalius jealously had guarded Van Kalka's soft pearwood engraving blocks, personally taking them by mule over the Alps, to the publishing house of Johannes Operinus in Basel. The publisher Operinus was born Hans Herbst in 1507 and died in 1568. Like Vesalius, Operinus was fluent in Latin, Greek and Hebrew. Operinus was also a graduate in both law and medicine and for a short time he was imprisoned for publishing a Latin edition of the Quran, but he was released after a direct appeal for clemency to Martin Luther. The Vesalian imagery that we see from the Fabrica is instantly recognisable. His skinned muscle men posing with a strident arrogance and vivacity, almost like Vesalius himself, against the backdrop of the Eugenian hills around Padua. Throughout, each layer of flesh is meticulously peeled away, leaving only the bone. Vesalius, really the first to re-articulate the bones of the body as a hanging skeleton. Actually, whilst in Basel with his publisher, Vesalius um, <coughs> had been invited to perform a public anatomization on a man, Jakob Kare von Gebeiler, who'd just been beheaded for bigamy and attempted murder. And after the dissection of the body, Vesalius decided to clean the skeleton and he re-articulated it with wire into the first known hanging skeleton. That's still actually on public display at the Basel Anatomische Museum. The Fabrica and its editions are practical manuals of dissection, including beautifully illustrated initial letters, what are called historiated initials of its parts, and these show his assistants taking down a body from the gallows 
whilst others transport corpses to the dissection rooms or prepare or dissect decapitated heads. Although some of these images appear particularly staged today and even rather melodramatic, it was said at the time that there were students who on viewing them were so disturbed by what they saw that they gave up their medical studies altogether. These things were not for the faint-hearted, and much of this fear was in the grappling hooks for transporting the corpses, which Vesalius described in minute detail. And in one of Van Kalka's plates, the corpse dangles precisely as Vesalius outlined, the imagery showing the pulley systems and rope restraints that lifted bodies into position. The chest and abdominal cavities have been emptied of their contents, just as would be the normal sequence of events in a dissection that was, that was governed by the rapidity and order of bodily decay. But some of the pictures Vesalius disseminated in order to advance anatomy were deliberately symbolic. One at the start of his book shows him in three-quarter profile, the typical posture of a portrait holding a partially dissected arm and hand and coyly eyeing his audience with a sort of knowing certainty. This is not the traditional commencement of a dissection, since other areas would have been corrupted earlier. They would have been the anatomist's priority, and bodies were of such scarcity that they would not have been wasted. For all of this dispute with Galen, Vesalius begins with what he regarded as one of the most divine pieces of creation, the hand. It was, for Vesalius, an instrument that God had bestowed upon man not to make him more intelligent, but rather because of his innate intelligence. Vesalius wrote of the hand that it was due to the marvellous labour of the supreme creator of the world. The lasting Vesalian legacy is the visual entertainment and instruction provided by his images. The words and curriculum of body dissection have long since been revised, with the imagery not only changing the content of anatomy, but also its natural trajectory. Even today, these pictures give an impression to any viewer of what it actually must have felt like to witness the examination of a Renaissance corpse. If one were in reverse to transplant a Renaissance anatomist into a dissecting room today, the corpse would be the only thing which he could identify with some familiarity. The modern corporeal surrogates, the computer-generated images, the CAT scans, the MRI scans, models and plastins, they'd all be alien to him, even though each of those conveys information that he would have already known from his dissections. But the style of this book by Vesalius and Van Kalka most likely in part contributed to the dissection of the cadaver becoming a public spectacle. The examination of dead bodies had been an accepted practice since the early 12th century and was used as a forensic means for determining the cause of death. There was after this time an increased use of autopsy to assess poisoning in particular, but also in the determination as to whether there might uh, be some sort of risk of something fatal potentially running through families. And another very particular use of the post-mortem examination was to decide if there were signs that someone was a saint. The latter circumstance 
was attended by many fantastical tales that were used by the Catholic Church to promote someone's beatification. Rather than the Church standing in the way of these examinations, they were frequently conducted under ecclesiastical or even papal aegis, and often performed in monasteries and abbeys by physicians, clerics and abbesses. It's no coincidence that Pope Innocent III, born in 1160 and died in 1216, who was a noted legal scholar in Bologna before his election to the papacy, used autopsy examinations during his tenure to settle important local disputes. The increased use of autopsy for these purposes led to a kind of general acceptance of dissection of the body for other reasons, and additionally contributed to the appeal of public anatomization. These forces all swept dissection into the public imagination when the judges were afforded the discretion by royal assent to add a public dissection on top of a sentence of execution. And this ultimate sentence was something intensely feared even by hardened criminals, but it did not act as an effective deterrent for the commission of capital crimes. In fact, between 1688 and 1820 in the United Kingdom, capital statutes permitting the death penalty grew from around 50 to over 200, the period receiving the title of the Bloody Code. But there was discretional commutation of many of these sentences, and it didn't of necessity translate into a proportional increase in the number of public anatomizations. Between 1770 and 1830, for example, of the 35,000 condemned to death, only about a fifth were executed. There's some interesting data on this by Sir Leon Radzinovich, who wrote a history of English criminal law and its administration from 1750 under Cambridge University Press. It was written over a period between 1948 and 1986. Anatomizations were also a drawcard for members of the public at large to attend both executions and post-mortem examinations. These were paying ticketed events, often with a hierarchy of seating. Principals and conciliary would be up the front, and then surgeons in training and doctors over 50 years of age, and then further back might be the younger medical fraternity and lastly laymen. These events, which were often carried out in the dead of winter so as to retard the process of decay, would last several days and be accompanied by chamber music and banquets. Aromatic candles would be lit to cover the stench of rotting flesh and prayers would be offered at the start and throughout to remind the audience of the importance of contrition for one's sins. It didn't take much power or flight of thought for those witnessing these spectacles to imagine themselves the object of dissection. The reputation of many universities laid some stock in the professionalism of these displays, and in some cities like Bologna they were scheduled to coincide with the annual Carnivale, in London at least for a time, around the quarter-size timetables which were used for hearing cases and for sentencing convicts. The programming programming of these dramatic dissections of executed criminals allowed the surgeons to rub shoulders with municipal leaders, theologians, artists, philosophers, even the ordinary folk, 
at a time when the faculties of humanities and sciences were far more closely linked than they are today. The premise may have been one of a ritualistic demonstration of corporeal anatomy, but their purpose was equally the symbolic reinforcement of the power of the state over those who would transgress its civic laws. cities, Bologna and Padua, created a particular style of anatomy teaching centred around their dissections. In Padua, the Theatrum Anatomia, designed in 1595 by Hieronymus Fabricius, was arranged as a concentric series of arches or galleria rising vertically away from the dissecting table so that no one observing would be more than 30 feet away from the action. Only Fabricius himself had room to sit down, and the area is so cramped that it's conceivable with the stench and poor lighting that patrons and students of anatomy would have swooned and fainted almost standing up. Padron anatomy was combative and rowdy, the anatomists frequently passing organs around the room so that they could be more closely examined. Those attending could personally assess the size and shape of livers and kidneys, feeling their weight and texture, and wardens would be posted at the exit in order to ensure that no one took off with any of the specimens. Bologna, by contrast, was a more sedate affair, the great theatrum built in a very classical style and adorned with exquisite wooden sculptures made by its famed wax modeller Ercolalelli, born 1702 and died in 1766, the layout was more like a conventional amphitheatre and even a cathedral, packed with plaques and busts and coats of arms, paying homage to its esteemed faculty over the previous half a millennium. The greater the notoriety of these events, the stronger the attraction. The public and private dissections were also the source of serious research that enticed new faculty members, a visit to a dissecting hall in the hope of seeing an anatomization and watching one of the grimy anatomists split up a cadaver was frequently the magnetic finale of a grand European tour, part of the de rigueur education of young aristocrats. Such a tour would have included the great museums and galleries and a stopover at the city observatory and botanical hortus. The 18th century saw a shift towards the Netherlandish schools where Leiden and Amsterdam competed for students of anatomy with their charismatic faculties and alumni. Amsterdam boasted its praelector Anatomie, the great embalmer Friedrich Reich, who was a friend of Sir Isaac Newton. Leiden was headed by Hermann Berhave, the man who most elegantly described the systematic way to examine patients, and who had one of the largest and most eclectic medical practices in Europe. 
Reich had developed European fame as an embalmer whose specialty was in preserving stillborn children and infants, and who was reputed to be so skilful that his embalmed babies appeared to some just sleeping and seemingly robbed of nothing but the soul. Reich had actually received a British medal for embalming the body of Vice Admiral William Berkeley, who'd been fatally shot in the throat during the Second Dutch-Anglo Maritime War. The victorious Dutch Admiral Michel de Reiter had asked Reich to patch Berkeley up for burial at Westminster Abbey. And when Samuel Johnson viewed the body, he declared quote, that it looked like the fresh carcass of an infant. Unquote. Reich's nemesis in London was its rector and professor of anatomy, Gavard Bidlou an irascible self-promoter who in 1685 published his Anatomia Humani Corporis, a definitive account of the body anatomy exquisitely illustrated by one of Rembrandt's pupils, Gerard de Lares. Reich and Bidlou were engaged in a bitter rivalry for their entire professional lives, with Bidlou suffering prejudice against his devout Mennonite faith and for the fact that along with his other university tasks, he also wrote many satirical plays and was the chief librettist for the Dutch National Opera Company. Bidlou was ultimately appointed personal physician to King Willem of Orange, who was later crowned King William III of England, and Bidlou's nephew, Nicholas Bidlou, established the first medical school in Moscow at the invitation of Tsar Peter the Great. But both Reich and Bidlou occupy a special place in dissection, since they both extensively illustrated their work using accomplished artists. These two men provided a particular flair through their imagery and demonstrating the interior of the human body, with Reich creating unique dioramas for the public by littering their landscapes with the preserved remains of stillborn infants and scattering them with moralistic and religious epithets. A Reich vitrine containing an embalmed baby would be sealed and then adorned with foliage that he had populated with insect larvae. And if you think about it, this was really the first known example of a live exhibit, and it would be a technique to display decaying flesh that was exploited 300 years later by the British artist Damien Hirst, whose piece A Thousand Years first exhibited in Charles Saatchi's London Gallery in 1990, positioned a cow's head being eaten by maggots, which then hatched into flies, and then they then fed off the animal's blood. In the end chamber, the flies were then electrically eliminated by an insecticutor, a bug zapper, and this completed the artist's narrative of the cycle of birth, life and death. But this too is an example of a living exhibit. Attention shifted from these gentlemen to London with the dissecting prowess and organisation of the Hunter brothers, William and John. And between the bookends of Vesalius and the Hunters were innumerable anatomists, but of all of them, the Italians Marcello Malpighi and Giovanni Battista Morgani, along with the dominance of Reich, stood out. Malpighi, for example, exploited Antony van Leeuwenhoek's microscope 
to begin the structural examination of the invisible cellular world. And by contrast, Morgagni, who had trained with Malpighi's assistants, pioneered the concept of following an individual's illness and examining its organic effects through autopsy. With his most important book, The De Sedibus et Causis Morborum Per Anatomum Indigatus, of the seats and causes of disease investigated through anatomy, which was published in 1761, he firmly established the discipline of anatomical pathology, what he called morbid anatomy. And it defined the natural history of particular pathological processes within organs and tissues. Indeed, Morgani was so prodigious, so highly regarded, that one of his successors, known as Puccinotto, remarked that, quote, if all anatomical findings made by Morgagni should bear his name, probably one-third of the human body would be called Morgagni's. Of the hunters, the elder, William, uh, the elder brother, William, established his private anatomy school in Great Windmill Street in 1768. It was the same year that he was appointed by King George III as the Distinguished Professor of Anatomy to the Royal Academy of Art, with the stated aim of synthesising the instruction of students in both disciplines. The crossover between the arts and the anatomical sciences of the Royal Academy was extensive. Anatomists like William Hunter lectured about the surface and muscle anatomy and the principles of movement, and later on the sculptor John Flaxman gave a series of lectures on science in reverse. These latter were posthumously published in 1829 as Lectures on Sculpture by Sir Richard Westmacott. This Georgian period was tumultuous, particularly after Britain lost the American War of Independence, and there were explosive fights between the private schools and the emerging new large London hospitals over who had a right to access dead bodies available for dissection. In fact, in 1700, there were only four major hospitals in London which appointed physicians as honorary unsalaried consultants, St Bartholomew's, St Thomas's, the Bethlehem Hospital, and Christ's Hospital. But by the first decade of the 19th century, there were 40 public institutions and a dozen private hospitals, with the addition of the main institutions, Westminster Hospital, Guy's, St George's, and the Middlesex. And in London, there were also other places where dead bodies might be retrieved for dissection purposes, and these included the specialist infirmaries, such as the Locke Hospital for venereal diseases, the Misericordiae, the Maudlin Hospital for fallen women, the Smallpox Hospital, and a range of lunacy asylums and lying-in hospitals. The Hunter brothers entered this environment as two of the most outstanding anatomists of their day. Indeed, they were so closely enmeshed that we must consider them together. Surgeons, anatomists and scientists, they were also the very model of sibling rivalry. These were two very different men, contrasting in temperament and fueling an enduring competitiveness over their closely shared pursuits. Having invited John to the dissecting rooms from their long Calderwood home in South Lanarkshire and the southern reaches of Glasgow, 
William proceeded to educate his younger brother in dissection, to the point that John, without any formal education, soon became the premier anatomist in England. He was hardly literate when he arrived. Through an obsession with dissecting and collecting, John rapidly transformed into the most innovative empiricist in the country. And through his extensive connections with philosophers, artists, politicians and navigators, he aimed with an incessant experimentation and observation to define by dissection the natural taxonomy of all the known species some 60 years before Darwin and the theory of evolution. William, by comparison under the direction of his mentor William Smelly, proceeded to shock London society by openly dissecting women. William Hunter converted his obstetric practice into a distinct profession by wresting it away from the midwives and establishing standards of obstetric care, just as I should done in Amsterdam a generation before. Over time, William became the foremost obstetrician in London and was personal physician extraordinary to Queen Charlotte. William actually attended the confinement and birth of Queen Charlotte's 15 children, 13 of whom survived into adulthood. William's contemporary, Sir Caesar Hawkins, had personally recommended him for the position in 1762, with William's management of the pregnancies of the Princess of Brunswick and also Lady Butte, creating such a good impression that they too had both recommended William to the Queen. In pursuing similar goals, both William and John could not, however, have been more different. William was a genteel dandy, quiet and elusive, even paranoid. John, on the other hand, was bombastic and easily drawn to anger. The extraordinary span of scientific themes covered by John and his ability to accumulate more than 13,000 specimens over his lifetime without question eclipsed the light that emanated from his older brother. John's collection was finally bought by the government on the instruction of the Prime Minister, William Pitt, on the 13th of June, 1799, for the exorbitant sum of £15,000. It's the premier collection of the Royal College of Surgeons in London. Even though William was less productive, he was in the throes of publishing one of the greatest illustrated books on the section, The Anatomy of the Human Gravid Uterus, a 25-year-long labour which described largely in pictures the growth of the fetus in utero. And for that project, he employed the landscape artist Jan van der Rimstik, born in 1730 and died in 1790, a rather enigmatic artist, to produce exquisite red chalk drawings in a giant portfolio, Brother John dissecting over a quarter century some 14 women who had been sent to the Hunter's Covent Garden dissecting rooms and who had died in the terminal stages of their pregnancy. Little is actually known about Van Rimsdick, who also produced the engravings for Smelly's 1754 book, A Set of Anatomical Tables, as well as the first mezzotint images of a pregnant woman for the obstetrician Charles Nicholas Genty in the demonstration of a pregnant uterus, 1757, and images also for John Hunter's On the Natural History 
of the human teeth produced in 1771. The hunters, one in the private sector and the other straddling both the private and the public spheres of medical practice, both set the stage for the rise of the public health system and for the model of what a British public infirmary would look like. Both established the tradition of a clinician as the source of active research whose basis was as much located in anatomy as it was a surgical narrative. The natural successors to the hunters were another set of dissecting brothers, the Bells. Both John Bell, born in 1763 and died in 1820, and his younger brother Charles, later Sir Charles, born in 1774 and died in 1842, formally took over the Great Windmill Street Anatomy School in 1841, but with a very different style to that of the Hunter brothers. John Bell was more like John Hunter, abrasive and often engaged in professional fights. Taciturn by nature, Charles reminded those around him more of William Hunter. Both Bells were accomplished and unique anatomical artists, Charles redefining the taxonomy of the central nervous system and the brain, and through such works as his 1806 essays on the expression in painting, he tried, as others had before, to fuse the science of anatomy with that of the mechanical arts. In 1799, Charles Bell published a system of dissections explaining the anatomy of the human body, the manner of displaying parts and their varieties in dissection. And in 1803, he publishes essays on the arteries. The book Expression in Painting by Sir Charles was the inspiration for Charles Darwin's 1872 publication Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. Both John and Charles were for a while, in effect, excommunicated from their alma mater, Edinburgh University. Actually, John Bell had effectively been debarred from his home university for writing a pamphlet entitled Letters on Professional Character and Manners, which strongly criticised the Professor of Medicine at the time, James Gregory. John had also antagonised the surgical community by having the audacity to open up an anatomy school directly opposite Surgeon's Hall. Despite this relative isolation, John was able to write an influential four-volume series, The Anatomy of the Human Body, between 1799 and 1803, which was illustrated by his brother Charles. Charles followed John to London in 1804, having been caught up in these scandals, but he was able to rehabilitate his career with his discoveries uh, in dissection of the brain and the spinal cord, and he was appointed the first Professor of Anatomy and Surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons London in 1824, the first Professor of Physiology at King's College London in 1829, and he was made a Knight of the Guelphic Order in 1831. He was ultimately appointed Professor of Surgery back at his old university in Edinburgh in 1835. There's no evidence that during this time that would suggest that either of the Bells were involved with those marauding gangs who disinterred the recently deceased and who bartered these bodies for money with the anatomists. There is, however, much to suggest, albeit with only circumstantial evidence at best, 
that both hunters used these men to obtain bodies for dissection. The profusion of new hospitals led to an ongoing problem of supply and demand for cadavers to dissect that stimulated a nefarious trade on both sides of the Atlantic where grave robbers and body snatchers would disinter the dead for cash. In the United Kingdom, these groups were called the Resurrectionists, and in the United States, the sack up men. But in both environments, many surgeons acted either as the passive recipients or as the active, recipients, uh, active participants in this unsavoury practice. The Edinburgh College of Surgeons wrote openly about its disdain for the activity whilst promoting and privately lauding those of its members who were able to successfully acquire bodies in such a manner. The Ohio Medical College acknowledged that after the Civil War, bodies were transported across the country in pickle barrels. Many of these corpses were black and destined for dissection in the white medical colleges. Expressing concerns over this trade and under pressure from the surgeons and their acolytes in Britain, a parliamentary inquiry was initiated so as to ensure a brisk and equitable movement of bodies amongst the medical colleges. This parliamentary inquiry had already handed down its findings before the notorious Birkin hair scandal, which gripped the country, actually came to light, and where a sorry collection of vulnerable people in Edinburgh were murdered and sold to Professor Robert Knox at the Anatomy School. The appearance of William Burke and William Hare on the Edinburgh scene marked a new low in the history of illegal body acquisition that resulted in a shift in what was or was not acceptably tolerable in society. Briefly, the careers, such as they were, of the Irish-born Burke and Hare had not indeed even started with murder, but rather with an opportunity when an old man had died whilst living in Mrs Hare's lodging house, and where, with some ease, both men, asking for simple directions in Surgeon Square, were guided to the school of Dr Robert Knox. There was nothing in particular to single these men out as mass murderers. Burke was born in Ernie, near Strabane, in the west of County Tyrone, part of the province of Ulster, Northern Ireland. Hare was born either in Ponty Pass, near Newry in County Armagh, or in Derry. And their accomplices were Burke's mistress, Helen MacDougall, and Hare's wife, Margaret Laird. It wasn't a leap of moral faith for them to find another lodger who, upon falling ill at the lodging house and after plying him with whisky, they then smothered to death, bartering the body for £7.10. shillings. Over a ten-month period, they then carried out 16 murders, including 12 more women, two handicapped young men and another old man. And these Westport murders, as they became known, brought the city to a state of near panic. I think within the limitations of the available records, the victims of Burke and Hare included, if I I, I can uh, add what I found, Donald an army pensioner who was sold for £7.10 shillings, Joseph a miller for £10, Abigail Simpson from Gilmerton, a salt seller for £10, 
a drunken female lodger for £10, an English male lodger from Cheshire for £10, Mary or perhaps Margaret Haldane, a prostitute, possibly for £8, Effie, a cinder gatherer for £10, an Irish woman from Glasgow for £8, a Glasgow woman's son or maybe her grandson for £8, a female lodger, unknown amount, a drunken woman in uh, Westport for £10, Mary Patterson, also known as Mary Mitchell, for £8, Mrs Hostler, a washerwoman, for £8, Anne McDougall uh, from Falkirk, the cousin of Helen McDougall, actually, for £10, James Wilson, a simpleton, for £10, and Mary Doherty, an Irish beggar woman, also known as, Mary, uh, as Marjorie Campbell. Nine of the murdered were killed in Hare's house, with four killed in Burke's house. Well, the police were alerted when Burke, acting suspiciously at his lodging house, tried to prevent his guests from going near his room where he'd recently stowed one of the bodies. After their capture, Hare turned King's evidence and Burke was convicted on Christmas Day in 1828 and sentenced by Lord Justice Clark to death and anatomisation. Burke was hanged at 8.15 in the morning on the 28th of January 1829 in torrential rain in front of an unruly crowd estimated at between 20 to 25,000 in all. The body quickly dissected and its parts laid out on display for nearly 2,000 angry people who were waiting outside. Actually, Burke's skeleton is in the Edinburgh University Medical School Museum and his death mask, as well as a life mask of hair, are in the adjacent surgeon's hall, along with a small wallet, which is purported to have been made from the tan skin taken from the back of Burke's left, or perhaps his sinister, hand. In 1831, London was gripped by a similar series of murders with sales of victims to the anatomy schools of St Bartholomew's, King's College and Guy's Hospitals. The culprits in that case, John Bishop and Thomas, Will <coughs> Thomas Williams, were seasoned resurrectionists who were accused of murdering three people for anatomy sale. And both men were publicly hanged on the 5th of December, 1831. There's no doubt that the infamous case of Burke and Hare stimulated Bridport MP Henry Warburton to propose new legislation, which appeared as the Anatomy Act, to solve this problem of cadaver supply and demand. The Act, as it was called, was specifically designed to use the bodies of those who had died in the workhouses, the almshouses and the infirmaries as fodder for dissection, provided that these bodies were not claimed within a reasonable time after their death. The previous legislation allowing dissection on executed criminals was actually enacted in 1752 as the Murder Act, or more correctly, an Act of Parliament for better preventing the horrid crime of murder. Fights between members of the public or the family of the deceased and surgeons and their agents frequently occurred in the shadows of the public gallows tree at Tyburn, resulting in a ragtag of riots which are referred to as the Tyburn riots, and these riots also served as an impetus for new legislation that permitted access to surgeons 
of an alternative source of bodies that would be suitable for dissection. In 1829, the first reading in the House of Lords of Warburton's bill failed to pass, garnering stiff opposition, actually, from the Duke of Wellington and also from the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, William Howley. But by 1832, after King George IV and Warburton's mentor, Jeremy Bentham, had both died, Warburton removed references in his revised bill to the word dissection. He'd learnt how to administer and present bills by Jeremy Bentham. And the modified bill passed an almost empty House of Lords in the middle of the night on the 19th of July, 1832. In replacing the Murder Act, which had allowed the anathemization of executed criminals for the past 80 years, the new law now established an inspectorate of anatomy and opened up a national register that would move bodies around in an equitable manner from their place of death to the dissecting rooms. But after its enactment, virtually no one was satisfied. The surgeons were unhappy, losing control of the process of allocating and freely moving bodies around the country. The Lancet magazine and its editorial board were also wary and were convinced that in competition with London, the regional centres would be underserved with their share of corpses. And in the early period after the law was enacted, the trade in grave robbing was virtually unaffected. But as the system produced more and more bodies, some of which were derived from the profusion of mental asylums, the body snatchers were gradually squeezed out of the market. Fueled by the poor, who were now the target of the new Anatomy Act, there were some sporadic public riots in Leeds and in Manchester. The parliamentary arguments that had supported the bill were largely conducted in private but all the best-intentioned legislators like Warburton had succeeded in doing was to effectively criminalise poverty. It was into this environment that Henry Gray, 1827-1861, to entered St George's Hospital, London, and the Kinnerton Street dissecting rooms. Apart from being the darling of the surgical fraternity and having received prizes for his dissertations, Gray was made a Fellow of the Royal Society at 25 years of age, with little up until that time in the way of scientific contribution. Gray was proposed for the prestigious fellowship with very few prior publications. Chas Brook nominated Gray for his general scientific knowledge, with Gray's election supported by personal recommendations from the esteemed physicians Sir William Bowman, Robert Lee H. Bence Jones, along with Marshall Hall, Richard Partridge, Henry Ackland, Hanfield Jones, Joseph Toynbee, and the prominent anatomist Francis Sibson. The principal author of what has become the most famous anatomy book, Gray's Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical, Gray began his collaboration in 1858 with the skilled artist and also surgeon Henry Van Dyke Carter. And together, the two men recalibrated the style of anatomical art from its rather baroque flamboyance into a modern schematic representation of the process of human dissection. The details of Gray's enigmatic life are contested and speculative, largely because of a paucity of personal data and because he died so young. 
actually despite having been vaccinated against smallpox as a child, Gray developed a rapidly fatal case of smallpox several days after visiting his nephew Charles, who was ill with the disease. I think at the time it wasn't realised, really not perhaps until 1870, that prior smallpox vaccination may not always provide lifelong immunity. But there can be little doubt that Gray's legacy on cadaveric anatomical teaching compares with, and it may be argued, possibly supersedes that of Vesalius. Both men reorganised the curriculum of dissection, and in rewriting the taxonomy of anatomy, both imprinted their own conceptual ideas onto its illustrative style. Now, it's that bond between anatomy and artist that I want to explore in the next podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.